Hi, everyone. Drew Perot here from the Broken Brain Podcast. On today's episode, we have an important conversation on the current approach to addressing addiction in our country and the power of language when it comes to destigmatizing addiction. I can't tell you how often someone reaches out to me asking for resources on addiction because a friend, a family member, or a loved one is suffering through addiction. But what's the latest science say and what does the research say on what truly works and what doesn't work? That's what these next two episodes are all about. This week's podcast is focused on a bigger picture conversation around addiction, and next week's podcast is focused on the tools in functional and integrative health and medicine to treat and address the root causes that make someone more likely to develop an addiction disorder in the first place. Now, a little background for today's podcast. Drug overdose and opioid-related deaths continue to grow at an alarming rate in the States and worldwide. According to the CDC, more than 700,000 people died from drug overdoses between 1999 and 2017. And on average, 130 Americans die from an opioid-related overdose death every single day. And of course, there's also alcohol use disorder, which the CDC estimates that 6.2% of the population here in America has. And even though it doesn't make the headlines, it's very much part of the conversation around addiction. Our guest on today's podcast is Dr. John Kelly, and I can't think of anyone more versed in the topics of addiction than he is. Dr. Kelly is a professor of psychiatry in addiction medicine at Harvard Medical School and the founder and director of the Recovery Research Institute at Mass General Hospital. During our conversation, we talk about the current approach to addressing addiction, which is very much focused on admit, treat, and discharge. Yet we know that stopping substance use is just one part of treating addiction. But the real questions are, how do we achieve long-term recovery? for both families and someone suffering with an addiction disorder? How do we instill hope for the future for those trying so hard to navigate the physical and psychological demands of recovery from addiction? And how do we build an effective American and global public health infrastructure to combat the opioid crisis and other substance use disorders to effectively support long-term recovery? These are the topics and questions we discuss in today's podcast. I hope you enjoy this deep conversation on all things addiction. Now, on to my formal intro for Dr. John Kelly. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast, where we dive deep into the topics of neuroplasticity, epigenetics, mindfulness, and functional medicine with the goal of helping you understand how your brain is not broken. I'm your host, Drew Perot, and each week, my team and I bring on a new guest who we think can help you improve your brain health, feel better, and live more. This week's guest is Dr. John Kelly. Dr. Kelly is the professor of psychiatry in addiction medicine at Harvard Medical School, the founder and director of the Recovery Research Institute at Mass General, the program director of the Addiction Recovery Management Service and the Associate Director of the Center of Addiction Medicine at MGH. Dr. Kelly is the former president of the American Psychological Association Society of Addiction Psychology, a distinguished fellow of the APA, and a diplomat of the American Board of Professional Psychology. He has served as a consultant to U.S. federal agencies and non-federal institutions and foreign governments. 
His clinical and research work has focused on enhancing the effectiveness of addiction treatment and recovery support services, stigma reduction, and addiction and criminal justice. Dr. Kelly, thank you for joining us. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd love to jump right in and start as an overview for our listeners here who have a different understanding or maybe a spectrum of understanding of addiction. So what is addiction? And when somebody's suffering from severe addiction, what's actually happening in the brain? Well, um, it's a great question in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of confusion about our terminology and concepts and constructs in the world of, of quote unquote addiction. You use the term addiction, for example, and that's the kind of handy term that we often use really to describe the whole spectrum of substance related conditions and problems. Um, and addiction really in its technical term is the severe end of the spectrum. Okay. So this is what we consider when we think about um, compulsive use despite harmful consequences. So it's this impaired control over the impulse to use substances that is the hallmark of addiction. And that's what we classically technically define as addiction. But outside of addiction, um, the, the technical meaning of addiction, we kind of use that term to describe the broad array of problems. And we have this classification now called substance use disorder, um, which is a broader a uh, more broad encompassing term that captures not just addiction, but it also captures kind of earlier phases or even different phenotypes of substance-related problems. Um, some people may have um, uh, kind of low-level severity and low-level problems, which never progress into more severe problems that we would call addiction. And they, that might be a mild substance use disorder or a moderate substance use disorder, for example. Um, and um, so, so if, if you mean addiction in what is addiction in, in the technical sense, it is really that cluster of symptoms, which is uh, essentially um, this compulsive use um, of an impaired control um, that results in harm, um, sometimes premature death, disability, disease. If you mean the broad spectrum, what is what is addiction? It is. Uh, an array of uh, different types, different types of um, substance-related uh, problems uh, that can uh, across a broad, a broad spectrum. Um, um, and you know, I think importantly, um, not just in terms of substance use disorder, but outside of the realm of, of a diagnosis of substance use disorder. For example. We have, uh, if you take the opioid crisis right now, right, we have a lot of, a lot of attention on opioids because of this huge increase in overdose deaths attributable to opioid exposure. Um, but we have about 12 million people. We have 2 million people, for example, 2.1 million roughly, who meet criteria in the United States for an opioid use disorder. We have another 12 million who don't meet criteria for an opioid use disorder, but are misusing opioids. So some of them may get into the category of opioid disorder, many of them don't. So it doesn't mean that they still can't cause harm to themselves by, by using misusing opioids, even though they never meet criteria for an opioid use disorder. Does that make sense? Makes absolute sense. And just goes back to this larger idea of the spectrum of addiction. Yeah, yeah, and the spectrum of substance-related problems, really. Um, and even within that tighter category of addiction, which we would call severe substance use disorder, that's six or more symptoms using our current diagnostic system, 
Um, even within that uh, cluster of between six and 11 symptoms, there's a lot of variability in terms of impairment, disability, um, and, and dysfunction. So we're here at the annual Functional Medicine Conference in San Antonio, and the theme, uh, one of the key themes is addiction mm. for this year's conference. In fact, you just gave a fantastic keynote earlier today on the topic. And a major part of the conversation today is understanding the true, is understanding the context of addiction in the true impact and the severity of it. For our listeners at home, can you just share some additional stats to help understand the magnitude of uh, the current state that we are in the relationship of addiction mm. in America? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, we, we've seen this opioid crisis uh, really that's caught the, uh, the attention of the entire culture, of our entire society, because so many new deaths have occurred as a result of overdose um, from opioids. Now, um, the, uh, which, is, which is hugely important, of course, but it's important to remember also that we have many more deaths attributed to, to addiction more broadly, particularly alcohol. Addiction. We have about 100,000 deaths a year, every year, from alcohol. But that's not news. Because it's been going on for so long. Because it's been going on for so long. We're kind of inured to the fact that we have these alcohol-attributable deaths. And alcohol is the responsible for the largest amount of addiction cases in the country by far. Um, but so also globally, too? And globally also, yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are 3.3 million deaths worldwide attributable to alcohol. That's 10 times the number of deaths of all illicit drugs combined, including opioids. So if you think about that, again, um, it's occurring, the opioid epidemic is occurring in the context of a more endemic public health problem that we have in not just in the United States, but in middle and high income countries all around the world. Um, and the magnitude of the problem in terms of public health, uh, disease burden, the volume of, of, of cases, and the economic impact of that is, is very, very large, much larger than, than cancer or heart disease or many of the conditions that we normally would think would be high volume diseases. Um, so we have uh, every year roughly about 20 to 25 million cases of substance use disorder in the United States. Um, and are those just the diagnosed cases? So there's obviously many more that are undiagnosed. Those are from those data are from annual uh, annual um, household survey data, which are done on a nationally representative sample of people in the United States. So um, then they're, they're diagnosed in the sense of it, it's a surveillance of the population. So uh, these are cases. Now only a small fraction of those, about ten percent, actually seek treatment in any given year. And there are many reasons for that. Um, but of all the cases, roughly 22 million, only about 2 million in any given year will actually seek treatment. So you have the other 20 million who have the disorder but don't seek treatment. There are a number of reasons we can talk about that if you want. Um, but, um, but the impact is, is very large. So and the, obviously we see it, we hear about it, and we've been hearing about it with opioids. Uh, but families are affected, workplaces are affected by these, these disorders every single day. Um, there isn't a family or a, or a community that goes untouched by it. Um, the economic burden is reckoned to be somewhere between 500 and $800 billion every year in lost productivity, healthcare costs, and criminal justice costs attributable and related to substance-related problems. So there's a huge economic burden too. Part of your presentation today was helping us understand the history of 
uh, addiction and how it was treated over the last 30 years. Almost 50 years. 50 years, sorry, 50 years. And how even at one point in time, they didn't even think of addiction as a diagnosable item. Mm. Could you give us a little bit of a history lesson? I know you had many slides in your talk today yeah. about it, but just take us through the understanding of addiction over the last 50 years and how it's shifted now. Yeah. Uh, or at least it's starting to shift, I would say. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. And no, I, I mean, I, I guess, I, you know, I've been thinking because it is roughly 50 years since the, the declaration of the war on drugs happened under Nixon back in 1970. So I've been kind of reflecting on that, like just to think about, well, where have we come in 50 years and where are we going to go in the next 50 years? I think it's an interesting thought. Um, so I've been reflecting on uh, what happened then when they, that, that declaration was made where uh, Nixon famously declared, you know, drug abuse, quote unquote, as public enemy number one. And, um, you know, I was describing uh, in my talk today, the uh, the fact that we we've shifted our, our 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 policy and laws and and cultural psyche has shifted away from um, the the punitive rhetoric of the war on drugs to a broader public health approach. And there's a reason, a few reasons for that. Uh, most notably, of course, is that the the harsh rhetoric and the approaches of the, to the war on drugs has not been tremendously successful. We've still seen these endemic problems. And if you look at the opioid crisis, the opioid crisis has arisen despite the fact that we've been having these concerted efforts. So even, even with, with everything that we've done, um, we have created a new crisis through, in, in, in essence, over-prescribing over um, uh, uh, what were perceived to be um, harmless, non-addicting opioids. Uh, that's a different avenue we could go down, um, and an important one, that story in and of itself. But um, the, uh, the history is, of the last 50 years has been uh, a very interesting one. We've come a long way when, we, when, when you reflect on it, I think, in terms of just the number of pharmacological and psychosocial uh, evidence-based treatments that we have, manualized treatments which are rep replicable, which are proven to work and help people uh, with addiction. Our understanding of the dynamics and mechanisms of treatment and what needs to be provided uh, to whom over what period. These are questions that we didn't know about in the 1970s and 1980s. We have a vast array of different types of approaches that can address um, the deficits that people have in terms of uh, different types of substance use disorders. We have pharmacological treatments, methadone and buprenorphine and injectable long-acting uh, naltrexone that can um, uh, block uh, agonists, for example, with opioid use disorder. We have FDA-approved medications for alcohol addiction, the top public health addiction problem that we have. Um, so all of these things have come along in the last 50 years. We've had innovative approaches in terms of relapse prevention, motivational interviewing, contingency management. Um, all of these new um, new approaches in the addiction realm, I think leading to most recently this greater recognition that addiction truly is a chronic condition, particularly on the, on the severe end of the spectrum. And it, even though most people get into remission eventually, it can take many years for that to happen. And so people, we need to keep people alive while they're kind of getting into, into remission, sustained remission and recovery. Um, and so because of that, there's been a greater emphasis on extended models of care. So looking at how we can provide care over not just 30 days or 90 days or six months, but uh, rather over the first year and over the first five years in particular. Because the classic approach of a 30-day uh, 
rehab, which many people are familiar with, you're sharing, and especially you shared today in your talk, is that the evidence is just not there for that as the only solution is how do we support people long term? And what you helped me understand today, which I had a somewhat of a sense of, but you really painted it clearly, is that a lot of these new approaches and this new approach to addiction has come from the changing and the shifting language of addiction. And that we used to think of somebody as being an abuser. And so when you think of somebody as being an abuser, everything is approached as punishing them. Uh, part of the work that you've done um, with the recovery uh, research um, uh, project that's there that you do at Mass General is helping people change the language around addiction. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's something in my career I wasn't as sensitive to as I, as I became. Um, about 15 years ago, I began to think about, because we had this term abuse um, in our nomenclature, uh, in our diagnostic nomenclature, for example. We had two diagnoses in the, in the addiction world. We had abuse and dependence in the old diagnostic classificatory system under DSM-4, which we changed to substance use disorder under DSM-5, a single category with, a, with a, uh, you know, a, a number of symptoms with mild, moderate, and severe classifications. Um, but I, I began to uh, you know, wonder how uh, our terminology uh, influenced our approaches and re both reflected and influenced our, our approaches. So the, the term abuse, for example, uh, I began to think about, well, we call a drug abuser, it's kind of like a child abuser. You know, we, we use that same terminology. I wonder what the, what, the, what the implications are of that. And by the way, it's not just about stigma, but also about clinical precision, because there was a lot of, you know, confusion because the term abuse was used, a bit like addiction, it was used to sometimes to describe the whole spectrum of problems. The substance abuse field, for example, was very common to people to describe the whole field. That included from prevention through recovery, okay, and everything in between, the substance abuse field. Um, whereas uh, the abuse diagnosis was an actual diagnosis. So you can see the confusion there. So sometimes the word term abuse was using a technical sense and a clinical sense to describe someone with a, you know, a, a low-grade substance use problem um, in, in contradistinction to dependence, which was addiction. Um, and sometimes it was being used to describe the whole spectrum of substance-related conditions and problems. So there's a precision problem, not just a stigmatizing problem. Um, so uh, anyway, what uh, you know, if you if you describe if you describe, I thought if you describe someone as a drug abuser, uh, then it may convey the notion that they're just engaging in willful misconduct, because that's what that term would seem to be to imply to me. If you compare that, for example, with describing the same person as having a substance use disorder, it, it creates more of a medical connotation, that there's some kind of disorder, it has the word disorder in it. I wondered then if, um, if it would um, actually induce any, any kind of different judgments about the same person if you expose someone to the term describing them as a drug abuser versus having a substance use disorder, for example. And we did experiments to show, yes, in fact, um, uh, the terminology that we use does, particularly that term, the drug abuse, drug abuser term, does induce these implicit biases that, that leads to greater blame, agreed, leads to greater uh, attitudes towards punishment versus treatment. So if we're serious about addressing addiction, 
then we need to think more seriously about the language that we use. And that's kind of a bit of a bandwagon I've been on in terms of trying to change the, our terminology and the way that we think about it. You know, the, the thing I like to uh, bring up is uh, uh, the kind of a first cousin of addiction is eating disorders. You know, we uniformly refer to people with a food-related problem as having an eating disorder, never as a food abuser. And yet we always refer, or we used to, refer to people with a substance-related problem as a drug abuser and not as having a substance use disorder. Now that's just cultural, that's just habit. How come we always talk about eating disorders but never food abuse? I want to ask you about that for a second. I mean, do you have any theories about where that came from? I mean, obviously when it comes to addiction, alcohol addiction has, I mean, affects people of all different backgrounds and socioeconomic conditions. I mean, now all addictions do, of course. Do you think that there was any sort of like uh, racial implications in the past history of war on drugs and, and us versus them and inner cities and poverty and the blaming sort of components? Is it through our understanding of neuroplasticity and understanding that, uh, oh, actually there are things that are going on in somebody's mind. It's not just not having willpower that you can't do this. Do you have any theories or thoughts that you want to put out there? I think it is. It's a good question. I, I think it does initially stem from the harsh, punitive rhetoric of the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. the, the goal of that, of course, was to try and suppress through stigmatization in a way. You know, it was through stigma to try and suppress the behavior and through the threat of punishment. You know, if you, if you, if you use illicit drugs, and alcohol was always always separate. It's always different uh, because it's the illicit drug. And, and many people even would say we shouldn't even talk about it as a drug, right? Because, wait a minute, we, we're all drug users then, you know, if, we, if we're drinkers. Um, so we tend, to, we tend to kind of treat that as separate. As, and even we call it alcoholism, right? As some, as some other kind of weird separate thing. But really, yeah. it's just drug addiction. Right. Um, but with, with, with a domesticated drug uh, called alcohol. I think, I think that, you know, initially it was that rhetoric um, uh, associated with, with creating a, um, a kind of a... It was perceived at that time. Again, this was coming out of the 50s and 60s. Right, leading into the declaration of the war on drugs, the prior 20 years after the war, end of the Second World War, um, when um, people really didn't understand illicit drug use. Everybody understood alcohol addiction and people could get into trouble with alcohol. And there was this thing called alcoholism, which had been around for hundreds of years, talked about, documented, treated, and tried to be addressed. But the other drug addictions that have come along really in the last 50 years, you think about amphetamine, methamphetamine, cocaine, um, stimulants as well as opioids, but those are the other big ones in cannabis. Um, uh, those were relatively new in most Western societies in terms of having a major public health impact that they came to. So it was a, it was a bit new, and I think it was perceived to be a volitional, willful misconduct. So, um, and I think that that language came along like child abuser, uh, drug abuser, was intended to suppress the behavior through stigmatization, discrimination, and punitive measures. Uh, it turns out, of course, that um, it didn't have the, the, the kind of effect that one would like to have, i.e. To, to diminish the cases of addiction and substance-related problems and conditions. That has not happened. In fact, it's maintained or grown. Part of your work at the, um, the project and the website that you've built with uh, Mass General, the recovery uh, the recovery uh, research project is you guys have created an, an addictionary. 
Yeah. And uh, what are some terms that you still hear that are out there or the media, or even if we're talking about a family member that has it? So we've already presented one. How can we all be mindful of our language? You've talked about somebody being an, you know, not calling somebody an addict mm. versus like having an addiction disorder, the mm. same way that we would say with food. Are there anything else like that that you would want to have our audience be more mindful of when it comes to people and how they talk about addiction? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, to, to be honest with you, you know, there's so much opinion about the lexicon in the terminology that we use. There was a lot of opinion, a lot of opinion about what's stigmatizing and what's not. And in fact, one of the reasons why I wanted to do those studies, those experimental studies where we randomly assigned different terms to people was to provide actually some kind of empirical basis for the rhetoric and, and the conversation around these things. Now, I don't know, uh, when we did the addictionary, and we, it was, it was taken up by, um, the, you know, this large organization, umbrella organization called Facing Addiction in the United States, which encompasses about 800 different organizations. Uh, they wanted input. They said, well, can we, can we input our terms and think, think about other ways of defining it? I said, yeah. So we put it out, put it out there, sent it out. There wasn't one term that somebody didn't think was stigmatizing, even substance use disorder, right? So no matter what term you use, somebody out there in the world is gonna say, well, that's stigmatizing too, yeah. So you have to kind of reach a kind of a consensus on you know, what's the least stigmatizing terminology to use perhaps, and can we use that terminology consistently so we all know what it means? And this is the issue with precision, and this is why, and why dictionaries exist, of course, of a language, so that we can all arrive at the same definition of the word usage, and the same, that was my goal with the addictionary, the addictionary, um, was to try and, can we create a list of terms which are commonly used in our field and in public health uh, for these conditions and problems um, that we all know what they mean and we use them precisely, okay? Because part of the problem, as I mentioned, with the abuse, people were using that in a generic sense and they were using that in a technical sense. That creates a problem in communication, clinical and otherwise. Um, so we need to be careful about, especially when these conditions are so stigmatized, which they are. They're the top most stigmatized condition in most societies. And when people feel extremely stigmatized, they don't seek help. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So it just, it drives the shame. It drives the isolation, which then feeds into the addiction. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about the, the 30 day rehab stint and the sort of uh, admit, treat, discharge yeah. model that's there right now. Yeah. You have a great analogy about um, one thing that we're really good at in a, when it comes to addiction treatment right now is putting out the fire. Mm. If you imagine a house, you said imagine a house. In fact, I'll just let you share that analogy. Mm. Um, can you give us the, the understanding of um, the admit, treat, discharge model through this house analogy that you shared? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I think we have um, historically treated addiction like an emergency condition, and it is, an, it is often an emergency, and the family becomes, most notably, the family becomes very involved because uh, it's those individuals, the family members typically, who get the person into some kind of uh, a treatment or help them get in or push them to get in. Um, uh, and so we've become very good at putting out the fire when the building is on fire. Um, but one of the problems we, we've kind of walked away thereafter and failed to uh, rebuild the building, you know, uh, to refit it, to provide the resources so the building can be reconstructed and also 
providing the, the, the building permits so that the actual building can begin. And you know, the point I like to make about that is that um, oftentimes we, we don't, we, we just put the fire out, but we don't provide the rebuilding resources for that person uh, in, in this case, to, to rebuild their life, to get the recovery capital together to be able to get some traction uh, in their life. And also the kind of the building permit analogy is the fact that many people have criminal records which prevent them from getting a loan, from opening a bank account, from getting a job. The things that are completely necessary in real life to move forwards and, and build some self-esteem, some structure, some income, some a place to live, all the basics that we all need, um, those can be cut off just because we fail to give someone a building permit because of their criminal history to do with drugs. So this is a major barrier um, that we need to think about. So think about the, the pathology. Yes, we need to put the fire out. We need to uh, detoxify, stabilize, medicate um, to get people stabilized. But then what do we do with a chronic illness? We, know we need to continue to help treat the symptoms, but also address the, the deficits, the contextual deficits in terms of recovery capital. So part of that is just helping understand what works versus what doesn't. You, you conducted the first ever national recovery study of Americans who resolved significant alcohol or drug problems. And this was really uh, a landmark um, uh, publication that was put out there. What are some of the key distinctions and lessons taken away from uh, the findings of that study? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, uh, appreciate the, the feedback. The, you know, we were you know, delighted to be able to do that study. It was the first nationally representative study of people in recovery who had resolved a significant drug and alcohol problem in the United States. So we estimated recovery prevalence for the first time. It turns out about 9.1% of the adult population in the United States has resolved a significant drug or alcohol problem. Um, so that's about 22.35 million people uh, are currently walking around who are in recovery, so to speak. Also, if I could pause you for one second, it's also, I don't know if the word is funny or sad, but it's uh, with all the money that's been spent over the years on the war on drugs, it's amazing that research like that hadn't occurred previously <laughs> yeah. to see a role model yeah. of what's possible, of what actually works yes. for the people who did have success. How did they get there? Mm -hmm. Did yes. you ever think about that when you were, yes. uh, yeah. I'm sure you did. Yeah, I did. I did, Drew. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, as, as one of my uh, heroes and, and mentors and colleagues, William White always says, you know, we've got volumes written about addiction etiology, the clinical cause and the, and the short term acute care of addiction. But we've got about that much written about the recovery, the lived experience of recovery and how people get into long-term remission and recovery. And so the goal of this really was to find out more about the pathways, the different pathways to long-term recovery. So how do people achieve sustained remission and recovery over time? And this is one of the things that now we're all trying to learn more about. The National Institutes of Health um, are now invested in finding more about how to sustain remission over time. We've been very focused, and it's been necessary because it's important also to, to for acute acute care um, is is very important for detoxification and stabilization. In other words, we have to put the fire out first before we can actually start to rebuild the building and refit it. Um, so uh, that's been important, but. 
Um, so one of the goals of this was to find out more, and number one, to, to look at the prevalence, which had never been done before, and then to understand more about the pathways and experiences of, of, of recovery. So uh, take us a little step further. So some of the distinctions that came out of there that I think would be interesting to people who are listening here. For people, for that 9% of the population who has had uh, recovery from that, um, let's walk through some of the things and the takeaways. The first one I'd like to touch on is timeline. And this goes back to the idea of the ongoing support for recovery. What are some of the key distinctions that came out of the study on timeline of recovery uh, for people that are in that 9% who get better? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, it's typically what we know from many studies, including this one, is that the timeline for, um, for getting into recovery can be a long one, even though most people will achieve remission, full sustained remission and long-term recovery. Most people will who have a substance use disorder. Despite all the deaths that we see, um, uh, uh, it, it, the deaths actually are only a very small proportion of all the people who meet criteria for the disorder, sad as they are, tragic as they are, uh, preventable as they are. Um, but um, the majority of people do achieve remission, but it can take many years, after, even after their first treatment, to get into remission. And what's, what's noteworthy also is that even when people achieve that first year of full sustained remission, that's 12 months without any symptoms. Typically it's abstinence, not always, uh, but it's, it's sub-threshold, so it's, it's typically you know, sustained remission. It can take many years to, be, to, get to, become, to get to the same level of risk of reinstatement of substance use disorder as the general population. Um, so uh, four or five years, in fact, of sustained remission before the risk is no greater than the general population. So that's four or five years of just continuously working on it, having a support system, which I think for a lot of people, not that they had a number in mind, but I think that would be when people really wake up to that, it's like, wow, if you have a family member that's suffering with addiction and they're dealing with this, it's really what is life after that first rehab stand or or therapy stint look like, and you're planning for four to five years out at least to support individuals? Well, this is a deadly serious illness, and don't underestimate it. That's what I always tell family members and, and, and people suffering from it. You can't afford to underestimate it. If you do, you do so at your own peril. Uh, and it requires you know, concerted, consistent, vigilant effort to stay on track if you're gonna stay in remission. It's like nothing else you will do. It's the most important, just the same as drug use, alcohol or drug use was the most important thing in your daily life. This has to become the most important thing. Top priority, if you're gonna be, if you're serious about getting and staying in recovery. And people who are successful, if you're successful as a, as, as a drug addicted person, from the moment you wake up, you're thinking about where am I gonna get my next drink or drug? How am I gonna get it? How am I gonna pay for it? How am I gonna use it? How am I gonna... All that is priority number one, right? When you're addicted. And the same way is true in recovery. So people who are successful in recovery make that recovery the number one priority. As long as it's number one priority, people will stay, tend to stay in remission. Um, but your point, you know, you're highlighting the fact here that this is not just a 30 day, 90 day vigilant effort. It's a lifetime really uh, effort of making sure that you stay in remission and you self and you self manage that just the same as if you had diabetes or hypertension or another chronic illness that you may always have you may never suffer from it because you take care of it you never may never suffer the symptoms but you're susceptible to it but you can stay in remission for the rest of your life 
And this is what many people do and, and have done. And that's what we found in this study and the, the different pathways of doing that. Was there anything else that, uh, I mean, it's probably so much, but any other things that you can share with us from the study that you found that that 9% had in common or key themes or approaches to treatment um, that, uh, that you might want to share here? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, what was interesting, and we've known this for a long time, that there are different pathways, different pathways to recovery. Um, so there are clinical pathways, and I think this is our default culturally, is that we think about, um, you know, if you get into recovery or if you've got an addiction problem, you've got a substance problem, then you go to rehab and you, you, you go to treatment and, you, and, and somehow you get well that way. And I think that's our cultural default. Um, we're less familiar with the other pathways, which is uh, self-management pathways. Actually, about half the, the individuals in this sample resolved their significant drug or alcohol problem without any external service at all. Wow, so they weren't in some sort of outpatient no. uh, program? No, never touched, never dipped a toe into an inpatient, outpatient program or a mutual help group or a medication. And so what were some of those self-management strategies that, were, that they were doing? So great question. So what we know is that people who uh, resolve their problem outside of formal treatment settings or mutual aid groups is that they use similar strategies, stimulus control, changing their social networks, um, staying out of risky places, changing their lifestyle to one that's conducive and supportive to abstinence and remission. So um, that means they, they, they stop going to bars, they stop going to liquor stores, they, 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 they have to let go of certain friends that they used to drink or use drugs with. Um, and so they use similar strategies, except they have the capacity. They're not as impaired. And what we find is generally the people who self-change without the help of external services tend to be less severe, have more recovery capital. So they have less deficits, less psychopathology uh, in addiction and other, other psychiatric illness, and more recovery capital. So they're able to change because they have more just ability, capacity to do so um, than other people. But they use similar strategies that we teach people in treatment. Stimulus control, in other words, avoiding, avoiding people, places, and things which are associated strongly with your alcohol or drug use. Um, the social networks one is, uh, is really fascinating because one of the themes that we talk about in this podcast is for all behavior change, our social networks have such a great implication, mm. whether it's uh, somebody working on uh, weight or obesity yeah. or even improving mindset and daily gratitude and happiness and in addiction. Uh, in your presentation, you talked about the role of social isolation on addiction and, um, and how it plays out in recovery. Uh, can you share a little bit more about that and also how uh, dopamine receptors mm. fit into that, um, that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're finding, finding out a lot more about kind of the social neuroscience of recovery and social factors in recovery. We've always known about the social factors, you know, the quote, peer pressure pathway into drug use, uh, as well as the kind of the peer pressure pathway out of drug use. So it works both ways. In fact, I often make the, the analogy, you know, between the, the, the pathways in and the pathways out. And you think about the, the main four reasons why people use substances are to feel good, to feel better, to do better, or because other people are doing it. The reasons why people stop are to feel good, to feel better, to do better, or because other people are not doing it. 
So there's the same four reasons, except there's a 180 degree turn. The thing that enables you, that takes away those, those negative feelings and thoughts or induces euphoria or enables you to perform in a way that you couldn't perform without the drug, now actually becomes a, a detrimental to, to all of those things. You do a complete 180. Uh, and uh, so the social factors, though, are one of the first factors, risk factors for onset of drug use, peer pressure. Human role modeling, encouragement, facilitation. Uh, we see someone else do it, that piques our curiosity. Huh, that looks interesting. I wonder what that's about. And uh, so that can, you know, create the fertile ground that increases receptivity to those initial offers of drug use that can then, if you're, particularly if you're genetically vulnerable, and genetics have a, a, a major role in, in addiction. Uh, is that you can, you're more likely to repeat it because you get a more profound effect from that initial exposure, which leads to more repetition, and that repetition changes the brain. Uh, on the reverse side, you know, your question about how social factors influence recovery in the dopamine reward pathway, which is, of course, strongly implicated in addiction, uh, what we're beginning to understand more and more is how social factors may affect the brain. Uh, so this issue of social neuroscience, particularly with dopamine D2 receptors, we've known for quite a while that our social networks and our social status, that is to say access to resources, are correlated with those deep dopamine receptors. The, more, the greater our social status, that is to say access to resources or recovery capital in the recovery sense, uh, and our social support, the higher the density of those dopamine receptors. That means that we have greater capacity to experience reward. The higher the density of those dopamine D2 receptors, the lower the likelihood of relapse. The stronger your relationships, the stronger your friendships, the people in your life that are there to support you through the recovery process, the more in a way nutrients you're getting from them, the more ability you have the, to receive the nutrients, the, the, the love medicine yeah. from the people around you, which makes you less likely to want to seek out other things to stimulate yourself. Exactly, yes. So, of course, socially, psychosocially, we've known this for a long time. Our friends make us feel good. Yeah. That's why we have friendships, because they something we get out of it. We give and we get from our friendships. That, of course, is neurochemically mediated. Like everything else in our life, it happens through the brain, activity in the brain. And But we haven't uncovered, what is it about our social relationships particularly in recovery, that could happen to facilitate adaptive brain changes, that could accelerate brain changes to make it less likely that somebody would relapse. So this is what we're, we're kind of uncovering right now in terms of our social, the social factors, which are so key from a, just an ordinary, more, more ordinary psychosocial sense, helping us feel good. The accountability, the responsibility, the ability to have that mentoring and monitoring. Um, that we have in therapy, we have in 12-step uh, in, in groups, for example, that are very, very strong in those groups, um, uh, that um, now we're starting to see, not just psychosocially, but what happens under the hood. It's super fascinating work. And so I guess the question on that would be also that a big part of the work in the space of addiction is also prevention. Mm. And so would you see that the, I don't know if there's any research that's been done in this capacity, but uh, that if, if it's our social networks and our strong relationships and our ties with other individuals that could help us in the recovery process, is it, that's also one of the factors that are there in prevention. Yes. And so when you talk to patients or you're putting out recommendations uh, through uh, 
the project, the recovery project with Mass General, you know, when people are thinking about preventative approaches to addiction, alcohol addiction, other items, um, are there practical suggestions that we have for individuals to be part of, you know, local churches and communities and other groups? Uh, what, what are the practical implications of that? Yeah, it's a great question on the prevention side. Um, I think all of those all of those different concepts and theories apply um, on the on the prevention side too. And you mentioned kind of pro-social, you know, bonds, um, strong bonds with family, strong bonds with community and community organizations. All of these are known to be protective against onset of drug use. Um, you know, preventing early exposure. We know the developing brain, the teenage brain, is particularly susceptible to uh, to addiction when it's exposed to earlier in the life cycle, in the, in the, in the lifespan. So just preventing early use, period, uh, until you're 21 or even later, ideally, uh, given what we've learned about uh, the, you know, the, the neuroplasticity of the brain and how it's still developing and hardening uh, in the prefrontal cortex in particular through the, through the early 20s. That's something we didn't know before. So very important to prevent exposure. Um, and then, um, looking for risk factors of um, uh, other kinds of psychiatric illnesses like uh, attention deficit problems, um, impulsivity uh, issues, and what we call endophenotypes or intermediate phenotypes that can increase the risk for substance use. So if you have a child that has more behavioral problems when they're younger, they're at greater risk for a substance use disorder later on. Um, so if we can start to treat that, identify that, and treat those uh, personality traits or address those personality traits which are emerging earlier, we can offset um, the uh, risk for uh, substance use disorder. Now, I don't remember if it was your slide or somebody else's, but also social isolation for people who are oh, staying yeah. at home. If they are socially isolated, if they don't have a best friend or a regular friend group, if they're not in regular touch with their family, they feel alone regularly. That also is one of the mechanisms that uh, people can pay attention to that are at greater risk of substance abuse down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we know, you know, things like impoverished environments also will affect the brain. So it makes it more likely that somebody from coming from a uh, a more a lower SES, a more impoverished environment, they're at higher, generally speaking, they're at higher risk. That's a risk factor for substance use. And that's mediated, again, through that dopamine pathway. They have, tend to have lower density of dopamine receptors, lower capacity to experience pleasure. And so they need a greater stimulus, which can be provided from, through, through drugs um, to get their attention and to produce pleasure. So that, that will also have implications on like the ACEs score for, for young, you know, adverse childhood yeah. experiences and, and individuals who went through that and, and uh, their likelihood of increased risk. risk factors. And again, you know, these are not, none, no one single factor is a massive risk factor, right? So we usually have a, there are a number of small risk factors which can combine and converge to increase the risk for somebody. But each one alone has a small but significant risk uh, in, in terms of elevating the risk for, for addiction from the prevention side. Um, so, so, you know, poverty, impoverished environments, abuse as a child, um, other kinds of psychopathology, other kinds of behavioral traits uh, increase, um, increased risk. Um, peers, so just access, right? If you think about the classic 
the classic public health model um, of the host, agent, and environment, right? That triangle where you have the host, the agent, and the environment. Here, the host is the person, the environment is the environment, and the agent is the drug. Um, you never get a substance use disorder if you don't have the drug. The drug has to be present for you to get the substance use disorder. So if you reduce supply in the environment, right? So one of the things the environment does is it helps to reduce exposure, right? So how do you reduce exposure? You limit how much of the drug is available. This is what we've seen with the opioid crisis. This was a self-manufactured crisis. How did it come about? It came about through over-prescribing what would perceived to be harmless, non-addicting opioids. Okay, so you had a flood of, in fact, in fact, seductive, potent, addicting uh, opioids into the environment. This is what we've seen, right, for the last 20 years, is the over constant over-prescribing with the perception that, wait a minute, there's nothing wrong with these. These are, these are, these are actually non-addicting. These have been shown erroneously to be non-addicting. Um, and this is what, what happened. So if you increase supply of, of, an, of a potent, seductive, addicting drug, you're going to increase addiction cases. So we need to reduce supply as well as demand, and demand is prevention and treatment, recovery support services. There's a lot of uh, digging into that, the opioid crisis and how it got started. Yeah. When, when you look at it, and as you had mentioned, a lot of the manufacturers of these drugs mm. were telling physicians and were telling politicians that these are okay. And even though we're seeing increased prescribing rates of them, mm. it's fine. It's all good. There's not any sort of issue. So is that, uh, do we need more checks and balances inside the system? Was was just faulty research being published and pushed out there? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was negligence on the part of the providers also in the scientific community in the sense that uh, it was taken as, as a fact when uh, that these were non-addicting, when, it was, when in fact it was actually, when they actually bothered to go look, it was based on one single very small study that was published, a naturalistic study in medical patients that looked at this particular uh, um, uh, pharmaceutical opioid, um, uh, showing that only a very small proportion of patients who were exposed to it became addicted. They used that, and of course the drug company seized on that high-profile publication, even though scientifically it was a very poor quality and poor rigor, that was used then and seemed to just uh, get washed away by all the frontline scientists, providers on the front line. They didn't bother to go back and check. That is a serious neglect of, of, of scientific communication, something which doesn't normally happen. Um, and something that we do need, you, you know, checks and balance, absolutely, to prevent this from happening again. I think a proper like yearly annual for every single provider agency nationally needs to check on, wait a minute, if we're prescribing this, what's the science base for this particular uh, medication that we're providing? What do we know about its safety profile, addiction profile in particular? There was a little bit of an outsourcing of the homework Indeed. on yeah. it. Yeah, good way to say it, yeah. Or just you know negligence and, and just not really paying attention to it and taking it taking somebody else's word um, for whoever's word that was some some other person diffusion of responsibility. You know most of the people that listen to this podcast they're lay individuals who obviously are interested in brain health. There we have some practitioners, but it's mostly just individuals who are uh, lay lay people. And uh, a lot of times in the general population, there's just sort of this trust of the medical community. But I think these are important things to talk about because 
we can learn from them. Yes. And people can push back and ask questions and, and do a little bit of their own research, which is part of the inspiration, I think, behind the, the project that, that uh, you created, um, the Recovery Research uh, Institute, is you will publish the studies on a whole different group of uh, either treatments, uh, you know, does acupuncture help for addiction, or, uh, and then you'll give the, you'll, you'll talk about the study, what does it mean? Is it uh, something that we can learn from? What are the takeaways that are yeah, from there? Yeah. Um, that was more of a statement than really was a question, but I think it's more of just the encouragement of anybody out there becoming a little bit more literate, especially if they or a family member yes. is suffering from addiction or any other disorder that's mm -hmm. out there. Yeah, no, literate's a good word, I, I like that word. Uh, and and that, that is one of our goals. So we publish this monthly bulletin uh, and we have a website um, that is, is intended to increase the value of our science uh, for, the general, for the public good. So we, we publish a ton of science, but only rarely does it actually get translated into usable information that policymakers, clinicians, administrators, and people in and seeking recovery can use. And so we want to create uh, a translated version of the science so people can understand it, they can use it, they can put it to good use, including family members and people in and seeking recovery. Uh, so that's what we do. And that's what we publish this monthly bulletin, the recovery bulletin. And we have at our website, which is recoveryanswers.org, which is a free website, free, uh, it's a free bulletin. It's donor funded, it's not industry funded. Uh, it's done through private donations. People donate to us and we're able to do it that way. Um, so we're able to do it for free um, and, um, and increase the, the word literacy is a good word that you use again, you know, so that people can increase their own literacy of, of uh, how they can use scientific information for their own benefit or those in their family. One of the articles that I found uh, very fascinating that you published uh, through that was mindfulness-based interventions. Hmm. Uh, that have been shown to target uh, regions that are impacted by addicted behaviors. Um, uh, any chance you can share just a couple of bullet points, at least from what we know so far on mindfulness-based yeah. uh, interventions? Uh, it, of course, we want the traditional interventions that are there, and it's so amazing the drugs that have been developed to help people from uh, overdosing and, um, and helping and supporting the brain, but there's also as you shared earlier, additional self things that individuals can do on their own. Right. So mindfulness uh, potentially could be one of them. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. So mindful, mindfulness meditation has, has been a kind of a new kid on the block in terms of kind of coming into the, the, the traditional psychotherapy world of treating addiction, the psychosocial treatment. They call this sort of kind of a third wave and a kind of behavioral wave, cognitive wave, and now kind of a mindfulness or Eastern philosophies and, and practices coming into East meets West in, in the therapy world. And uh, of course, in Eastern cultures, this has been practiced for centuries. Um, but now we're starting to cotton on and become more uh, mainstream, in, including things like yoga as well. And uh, so this has become more mainstream and used clinically now, and more acceptable to use uh, clinically. Um, in terms of neuroplasticity and brain change and how it may be helpful, you know, certainly in terms of our uh, focus, uh, the prefrontal cortex, uh, impulse control, and uh, appraisal judgment, 
we know that uh, meditation actually requires a great deal of focus and concentration on the neutral, on the breath, but you, you, know, you know how, if you've ever tried meditation, how hard it is to actually stay focused on your breath, for example, even for a few seconds without your mind drifting off, pulling you in a different direction. Um, so that, that idea of um, mindfulness becoming more aware of your own processes and thinking um, has a psychological but also a neuronal effect in terms of its ability to, to change those neurons in the brain, strengthen those connections in the brain to increase awareness, impulsivity, control, inhibitory control. That's one hypothesis. There's some data to support that. The other thing is oxidative stress. So if you think about uh, meditation, when you're meditating, you're neutralizing. You're not thinking about stressful events. You're actually still and quiet most of the time you know, when you meditate to try and increase um, the neutral focus, which allows um, um, uh, a dissipation of oxidative stress or mitigation of oxidative stress that can hurt. And stress is one of the major precursors for relapse in addiction. Uh, and um, so that, that, that's one, another pathway. So anything that can support stress reduction is naturally going to have an, an implication on yeah. reducing a, a, a possibility of relapse. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, exercise is another one. You know, I mean, these other, other factors, diet and exercise, are also critically important. We don't often talk about those, but those are also very important aspects of recovery. Anything that you can chime in on diet-wise? Uh, we've done a lot of episodes about on the podcast about uh, anti-inflammatory diet, modified Mediterranean diet, uh, staying away from things that could have uh, contributing factors to um, uh, depression. We've had uh, Dr. William Lee uh, from also Mass, Mass General and his book, uh, Eat to Beat Disease. He was on Dr. Hyman's podcast and talking about the role of reducing inflammation in the body. And we know that inflammation is, uh, is one of the key uh, in, um, precursors to uh, depression or ADHD, which are all factors, as you said, that could eventually lead to uh, addiction and substance right, abuse. Right. Any Anything that you'd like to chime in on on diet or more studies that you'd like to see out there in the field? Hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I wish I knew more. I don't, that's not my expertise in terms of diet. I just try to get patients to eat anything <laughs> when they come in uh, because the diet's been absolutely horrible, you know, in terms of actually just frequency of eating anything. Because you're primarily seeing patients who would be, in your analogy earlier, as like the house is on fire. Yes, they're, they're, they're you know, and of course, uh, when when people in, on the more severe end of the spectrum, uh, they tend to stop eating, and, and are just are just are just using alcohol, they might they, or or other drugs, uh, uh, without uh, without eating. So they may only eat once a day, if that, um, once every other day. So that they lose a lot of weight and they become vulnerable to other other kinds of diseases as well. So just just getting people to eat, you know, three meals a day. Very important, no matter what it is, just getting some food inside you uh, in those early days and weeks and months. Then focusing on kind of more balanced nutrition. This was talked about earlier. Is kind of like you know, it, it's it's kind of common sense. If you can eat a whole foods, you know, vegetables, fruits, starches, but whole foods, meat, uh, whatever it is. Um, but just eat a balanced diet of you know, in moderation, three meals a day, and you're going to do fine. 
It's when you're overeating in a certain area of fats or saturated fat or whatever that you're in, that you get into health, other kinds of health problems. We don't know, uh, other than the obvious things like B, B, B vitamins when you're detoxing from alcohol, um, uh, the classic ones which can prevent onset of, um, you know, uh, uh, Renica Korsakoff um, and uh, wet brain and things like that, uh, with the B vitamins. Uh, we haven't had much luck in identifying particularly potent uh, nutrients, which other than just eating, uh, that will have an effect on, um, uh, you know, a, a substantial effect on, on recovery, other than just making sure that people eat. Yeah. Well, I look forward to more research in that, yeah. uh, in that space. So I want to talk about policy uh, a little bit while we still have you here. Um, I want to talk about there's this conversation of safe houses that's going on nationally. In fact, right now, I think the Justice Department is suing the city of uh, Philadelphia to stop a nonprofit group um, from uh, safe injection sites. Um, do we have any data or information out there about uh, when people are in uh, recovery, uh, or do you have any personal opinions on, on the impact of uh, safe injection sites whether they're taking us in the wrong, right direction, the wrong direction. Yeah, um, I think they have an important public health role to play. Uh, they're not going to ever be mainstream, um, but it's only a, a small proportion of the population of addicted people who would use a safe injection site to begin with. So this does not mean you're going to have a safe injection site on, on uh, in every in every corner of your of your town, uh, but rather there is usually homeless people who don't have anywhere else to go um, could use and do use uh, safe injection facilities. Um, and I think the fear in is kind of intuitive fear perhaps is that oh if we provide safe injection sites and, and the same was true of needle exchanges when they when they were started. Um, providing clean needles for people um, uh, is that we would increase or encourage drug use. Somehow we would be increasing it rather than or, or facilitating ongoing drug use as opposed to what, what turns out to be the opposite is that you get people who would not otherwise engage with any kind of treatment people or treatment agency. Number one, to prevent HIV and hepatitis C in, infection, cross-infection and communi uh, communicative diseases like that, infectious diseases. Um, and you increase the odds that somebody's gonna actually start to get, engage in some kind of help for themselves if they're engaging with a nurse or a practitioner who, who may be monitoring them uh, while they inject drugs, uh, but in a safe way. So, uh, and there's been limited empirical study. It's a hard thing to study because number one, they're very stigmatized. Um, uh, there's a lot of political opposition and community opposition to having these things in your community. Um, and there's a miss, uh, kind of, uh, as, a, as a, again, kind of a miss, an initial misinterpretation or mischaracterization of what they can do to help uh, your community, as well as those individuals uh, suffering from addiction. Number one, the studies that I've seen is that they reduce um, uh, exposure to just uh, 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 needles uh, left on the streets in those communities. So because now you have safe disposal, people are going to these, uh, in these hard hit areas where you've got more people addicted uh, with opioids, injection drug use, um, you have proper disposal of the needles. So the, the occurrence of, of um, uh, needles lying around in the, in, the, in the park or on the street goes way, way down. 
So that's one of the good things from a public, from a public health standpoint, community standpoint. And from the, in, we know less about its effect on the individual user other than uh, it provides safe monitored injection with clean needles in a safe environment so you can keep that person alive. There's a lot of people listening to this podcast today that have a family member that's suffering um, on the spectrum of addiction and it has an addiction disorder. Uh, a big part of this is, is even people thinking about how to talk and how to approach a family member and how to encourage treatment and support and how to be a part of their recovery process. Are there any good resources that are out there for people who find themselves in that position? Um, I and my own family member, I had a my family member of mine, a, a cousin, who was suffering with addiction, and for a good a good year, there was a lot of internal conversation. The best way to be supportive: Do you are you tougher with that individual? This individual is adult; they're older than eighteen. There's a lot that you can do. There's only so much you can yeah, do. Yeah. There's the human element of this, and I'm wondering if you have any experience of uh, resources or suggestions that can support people in the process of addressing addiction with a family. Yeah, that was such an important question. Um, and you know, just earlier at the conference today, I had two or three people come up to me and ask me about their family members and how they can help them. For, you know, they're at their wit's end, uh, and it, it, this is a very, very common problem. Um, uh, you, you want to help so much to to, uh, to to help them help themselves, and and yet they don't want help, or they're not ready for help. Uh, and so, what do you do? Um, you can, um, I think, uh, being uh, persistent, being facilitative. Uh, for some people, uh, for some people, uh, uh, the, the, the you know the consequence of getting kicked out of their house actually helps them get into treatment and, gets, and, and get into recovery. For other people, that could kill them. So it's hard to know in every instance what the right thing to do is. Uh, but um, one of the empirical ways we know is for the concerned family member, concerned significant other, could be the spouse, parent, uh, friend, brother or sister, uh, is to get help Get help for yourself in how to best cope with your loved one, addicted loved one. Um, there's been groups like Al-Anon, Naranon have been around for for decades to do exactly that to help the family member um, learn from other family members who've gone through the same thing and how they've dealt with it successfully. So that's important. Just like people with addiction themselves learn from other people with lived experience of recovery. Um, uh, family members can do the same thing. There are also now empirically supported treatments, uh, Drew, called, one's called uh, uh, the Community Reinforcement and Family Training or CRAFT approach, uh, which is an empirically supported treatment that is coaching, essentially it's coaching for a parent or uh, uh, a family member who has an addicted loved one. And what it does is it uses empirical principles and proven principles to coach the family member in how to deal with their addicted loved one to make it more likely they will engage in treatment. And compared to any other kind of intervention that you might try and do with your loved one, it way outperforms it, way outperforms it. It's called the craft approach. So if you can find someone, if you, if you have a, someone that you care about, that craft method, community reinforcement and family training method, 
is, is an effective, probably the most effective coaching approach that family members can use to help themselves, to help their loved one effectively. And for those that are in that uh, process, you've also talked about how, um, going back to your original statement about how uh, alcoholism is the largest addiction that's out there. And the work of um, um, Alcohols Anonymous, and you guys did a meta study on its effectiveness. Um, And one of the reasons that I just want to touch on that briefly is that you were sharing earlier about how it's truly a resource that's out there that um, can be very supportive for individuals that are going through it. And also, uh, it's, it's, uh, I'm not exactly sure what the, the, the fees are, but it's close to free for individuals mm-hmm. to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Can you touch on what you found in yeah. the study and looking at uh, yeah. in the organization? Yeah, yeah. So you know, one of the, one of the things for for many reasons, I, I think, uh, is Alcoholics Anonymous has been a very controversial topic, particularly recently. Um, but it's 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 hugely influ- influential as a recovery support resource. Uh, and it's only really relatively recently that there's been hard-nosed science been applied to studying AA and treatments, which are called 12-step facilitation treatments, which are designed, they're clinically delivered treatments, which are designed to get people involved in AA. Uh, and AA is a peer-to-peer network of support that is, again, based on the lived experience of individuals who have already gotten into recovery through a method that they found to work for them called the 12-step 12-step program. So what we did was we systematically examined using very rigorous standards, which are designed by a system called the Cochrane system or the Cochrane Review. And uh, we're about to finally publish that. Um, but what we found using, when, it, when it's subjected to the most rigorous scientific standards, that actually AA is extremely effective at sustaining abstinence and remission. It's actually probably, when you look at sustained abstinence, there's nothing better for alcohol use disorder than this 12-step facilitation treatment. It does better at sustaining abstinence. It's similar on other metrics, but in terms of keeping people in remission over time, it's about the best type of treatment that we have for alcohol use disorder. It's equivalent on, on the other outcomes. So it's, it's good at helping people get and stay in recovery at a reduced cost and you brought up the issue of economics, uh, we included five or six different economic studies that, were, that made it into the review using our criteria. Um, so we also found that individuals, when they were assigned to, randomly assigned to these 12-step treatments that got them involved in AA, they reduced healthcare costs because they were not ending up in the emergency room or hospitals because they're staying in remission. Uh, but also they're using the peers as therapists as well. So the less need for other mental health, professional mental health treatment. It goes back to the idea of social networks and being able to support us in that environment. Yeah, yeah. And and so what was pretty impressive for me in this particular analysis was the magnitude of that difference. When we multiply it up, uh, we found that over a two year period, patients who are linked to AA or NA had a $10,000 reduced healthcare cost bill over the next two years and better outcomes. So they had one third higher abstinence rates at substantially reduced healthcare costs. That's the kind of double, double whammy we're looking for 
in healthcare, ideally, because healthcare is expensive. If we can find something that we can link up with a free resource in the community that can support and sustain remission over time for nothing, because that's what AA does and groups like it, they don't charge any fees, uh, we're onto a good thing. And in fact, I think about that as kind of the closest thing in public health that we have to a free lunch of groups like AA, because we have a massive problem, endemic problem, with alcohol, with opioids, with cocaine, amphetamine. And these peer-based community networks actually can sustain people in remission over time. That's the good news. It's not a cure-all. It's not for everybody. But it's important to recognize what it is and how good it is at sustaining people in remission and reducing health care costs. Those are very important benefits that we have as a freebie out there in the community. And when we look at the magnitude and, again, the cost of this, in a way, we might need to be looking at more solutions like that because mm. it can feel so big. Yes. And especially with what direction the graph is heading in, you know, how do we actually approach this all? If you could, and you're doing so much work in this space and obviously highlighting what actually works versus what doesn't, you have a magic wand, you have a policy wand, you have a community uh, sort of advocacy wand that is given to you what are some of the things that you are trying to create to help ad address the addiction crisis that's now? What would you like to see more about that? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think you know, this is not new, but it, it's, it's those three arms of uh, supply reduction, demand reduction, harm reduction. So can we address those three through three pillars of the stool, if you were to address addiction? Supply, reducing supply, reducing population exposure. We've started to do that with prescription monitoring programs now to try and monitor um, uh, prescribing a little bit better. Um, I think inf creating infrastructure for checks and balances, as you mentioned, in terms of uh, uh, what we're actually prescribing out there, making sure we're careful about uh, prescribing uh, and what we're prescribing. Uh, and, and with, with other supply, uh, we have to be careful with alcohol. We know that alcohol licensing, lic alcohol licensing and alcohol pricing. So price and availability are big factors in consumption. So watching our, our pricing, the cheaper you make a commodity, um, um, and the more available you make it, if it's a seductive commodity, which alcohol is, consumption will go up. To the extent that that commodity can cause harm, the alcohol causes addiction, toxicity, intoxication. Um, it can produce greater public health harms. Would you like to see like an alcohol tax, the way that like soda is being taxed right now? I mean, well, there is, there is an alcohol tax um, in in many places, um, but yes, uh, again, thinking about uh, the two big factors which affect consumption: price and availability. This is on the supply side, um, so that's one aspect, and then the demand side. Is, um, is what we've been talking about a little bit with, with uh, treatment and then also the freebies in the community. AA, NA, all this big network of support. But there are other mutual help groups too. Smart Recovery, Life Ring, Women for Sobriety. All these other mutual help entities celebrate recovery. There are many different other groups out there which are providing the same kind of uh, engagement and retention and, and, and social support to sustain remission over time. Different flavors of the same thing because we know there are different preferences and styles of recovery out there and pathways to recovery. Um, there are other things that, are, that have come about which I think we need more of and that is more of what we see with naturally with, with AA and groups like it is now we're trying to implement that more in a systematic fashion. That is to say implementing uh, recovery support infrastructure in the communities in which people live. And what I'm talking about there 
are things like recovery community centers, sober living homes, uh, recovery high schools, collegiate recovery programs. So embedding recovery support infrastructure, given this is such a high volume, high burden disease, uh, in the places where people are likely to find themselves. And so uh, more of that, more infrastructure, public health infrastructure to support recovery, given this is our top public health problem. We're talking about spending trillions of do- trillions of dollars on infrastructure, roads, bridges, airports. But what about public health infrastructure? I mean, the idea with 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 our transport infrastructure, of course, is to make our country safer and better, uh, so that we can reduce accidents and injuries on the roads, etc. But we have hundreds of thousands of people dying every year from overdose and alcohol and, and you name it, uh, right in our face right on the TV and on the, in the radio every single day. We, we, we hear about these uh, tragic statistics, uh, but we're not spending anything like the amount of resources to prevent those deaths that we do on, on other areas. So and even a fraction be, of that would be, would be better. And people often think of like spending on transportation as, as an economic uh, creator, but it also could be an economic opportunity to right. spend on healthcare. Yeah. Community health facilitators, social workers, yeah. health coaches, yeah. which are a lot of hospitals yeah. are implementing yeah. that are that are out there. These are these are job opportunities too for the economy and yeah, people back absolutely to work. right. You know, and 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 a part of it, you know, is you know the big the big conversation around healthcare and healthcare reform, and you know we've we've made inro- we've made some inroads in terms of addressing disparities in coverage for you know, people who are insured um, to get coverage for mental health and addiction, right? There was an act that was passed in 2008 called the Mental Health and uh, Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act um, that was passed to try and uh, reduce the disparity between insurance coverage for other health conditions and make that the same for um, mental health and addiction. Uh, and we've made some inroads that we've got a long way to go. But, you know, in terms of uh, one of the big complaints I hear is my insurance won't cover it or they won't cover this or they won't cover that. And uh, to make coverage the same as it would be for hypertension or diabetes or any other chronic health condition, you're not limited in the number of visits you have for hypertension or diabetes. You just go along to your healthcare provider, you do a checkup. We need recovery checkups for addiction as well. And there shouldn't be limits on that. Uh, when this is such a high volume, high burden disease that has a huge price tag for not addressing it. For people listening at home, I mean, really, that's like a policy thing. And so more awareness for their local politicians and really encouraging that that work in Congress. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, this is a bipartisan issue. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat, uh, your family members are affected the same. And this is one thing, actually, that we do have some bipartisan support for in terms of addressing addiction. You know, because it's such a fundamental human uh, problem that affects you regardless of your ideology or politics. Um, and it's something actually I think we can reach better consensus on in terms of addressing. It started to be addressed. I mean, uh, the Trump administration has actually appropriated several billion dollars to addressing the current opioid uh, crisis, which has been extremely helpful. Uh, but we need to do more. We still need to do more to address the endemic problems related to addiction. And that's what I mean when I talk about public health infrastructure. We need to invest more in public health infrastructure the way that we're talking about in terms of transport infrastructure. Because really, truly, the health of our nation, our families are dependent on it. And uh, by all accounts, it is not slowing down. 
is my interpretation of uh, the presentations that have been here this weekend. Right. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. Uh, how can individuals follow your work or the work of the organizations that uh, you're a part of or, or any asks from our community for the things that you're involved in? Well, please email us at recoveryanswers.org. Recoveryanswers.org is our, is our web portal. Um, we have, that's where the Recovery Research Institute, follow us on Twitter at Recovery Answers. Um, um, and uh, sign up for our bulletin. So we get a, we publish a free monthly bulletin, which um, people seem to really like and they get a lot from. It's, it's kind of the, the latest science on addiction treatment and recovery translated for the general public and clinicians and policymakers. So and we have a bottom line in there for each article that we produce um, that, that, that has the relevance for different constituencies out there, if you're a family member or if you're a person in or seeking recovery. So we try to speak to different audiences through that. So you can do that for, and, and you know well, through our social media channels, uh, like us on Facebook, et cetera, follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and, and all of those normal social media channels. Email us, though, if you have things specifically. We want to hear from you if you have particular things that you want to hear about that we're not covering, we're not covering enough, because we love to get that so that we can, because oftentimes you think, duh, why didn't we think of that? Why aren't we covering that issue when there's so many people out there who have that particular concern or issue or question? So we love to hear from people. Uh, So email us through that recoveryanswers.org web portal. We'll get those emails and we'll respond to them. And all small donor funded, so... Anybody who's listening that wants to be a part of the solution, this process, yep. please uh, make a donation. I made it myself a donation right before this interview. Ah, well, uh, thank you so much. And, uh, and so anybody who wants to, just click on the show notes. You can see the link to the donation over there and all the uh, websites that uh, Dr. John Kelly mentioned. Uh, Dr. Kelly, thank you again. No, we appreciate you. you being on the podcast and talking about this uh, very important topic with us. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search their find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.